Good morning, everyone. If you were here last Sunday, we started a new study, a new book we're looking at. We're looking at the book of Exodus, and I framed that discussion as God's call to his people then and to us to escape to God's presence. But a question may come to us. If we're supposed to do that, if we're supposed to come to God, if we're leaving our old way of life to come to him, why would we do that? What is God offering us that's better than we could find somewhere else? What is he like? How is he different from the world around us? And to appreciate what God offers, we need to see what he saved the Israelites from and what he can save us from as well. And one of the major ways we can see this difference between God and who he is and what he offers versus what we find around us is in how God values life. God values life when the rest of the world often does not. Nations and countries do not seem to. Even if we looked at things like the political right and left in our country, we don't see a full value of life. God created life. He created human beings in his image. They have sacred worth and value. And our text today, which is Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22, it's going to reveal a sharp contrast for us, a big difference between those who do not value life and to those who do honor the value that God has placed in life, the value of life we discover in God's presence. And through this message, I hope you'll see that God calls us to turn away from not valuing life, from fearing others, from hurting others, from viewing those who are defenseless as expendable, and instead to fear God, to defend the lives of others, because those are the values God blesses, and those are the values we see in his son, Jesus Christ. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 8 through 22, little 8 through the end of chapter 1. You can use the blue Bible and the seat back in front of you, or we'll also have it on the screen. And once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word, And follow along, I'm going to read our passage for today. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, starting in verse 8. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad, And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, 
but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. God, this is a passage that in many ways is full of pain, suffering, brokenness. But yet in it we can see your heart for life because you created life and give it value. Pray, God, you would turn our hearts away from fearing others and hurting others, viewing others as expendable, as as not worth living. And instead, God, I pray you'd build in us a fear of you, a desire to defend the lives of others. Because, God, as we see here, you bless that. And that is what we see also in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we learn your value for life as he values life. May his valuing of life lead us to seek him, to know him, and to have a relationship with him, to worship him every day. May we see your heart. May we see your son clearly in this text. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So to approach this passage, we're going to look at these two different uh, examples, these two different pictures, those who do not value life and those who do value life. So first, those who do not value life, we see primarily in Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the first thing we see about that is that they fear others. If someone does not value life the way God does, they fear others. Last week, if you were here, we introduced this book. God's people, the Israelites, had come to the land of Egypt. One of their leaders, a man named Joseph, had been in Egypt. He'd risen to the place of prominence. He was the second in command, and he brought his family to Egypt. They multiplied. There were many descendants. And so it's very startling to read the first few verses of this passage. We think things are going well for God's people, but this new Pharaoh wants to change this. The text says a new king. It's talking about a pharaoh. Pharaohs were, of course, the rulers of Egypt. And when we see pharaoh or or king, it was kind of talking about maybe not necessarily one person, but everyone who worked for him. We use the same language today. Have you ever seen on the news, they say, the White House said today. That, That doesn't mean necessarily the president. It could have been one of his representatives. But this new administration is in control in Egypt, and they viewed pharaoh as an absolute ruler. He reflected all the Egyptian gods and how they ruled over their people. The Egyptians viewed the Pharaoh as God himself, as a God in the flesh. And it's this God that the one true God is going to have to rescue his people from. We read this new king, this new Pharaoh did not know Joseph. That probably doesn't mean he didn't, it's not that he didn't know who Joseph was, but it means that something has changed in Egypt, and he did not have a treaty with this Joseph, did not have a relationship with him, did not recognize his special place. If you have a NIV, they use a phrase, Joseph meant nothing to him. And we actually have some historical background that informs on this. 
When Joseph and his family came to Egypt, the people ruling Egypt at that time were from what we would call today the Middle East. They weren't native to Egypt as we know it. They were from somewhere else and they had taken, they took over the land of Egypt. And that was the Pharaoh probably Joseph knew and that he came down with. But then the native Egyptians kicked those pharaohs out and put some new pharaohs in power. And these new pharaohs are probably very suspicious of foreigners, immigrants, refugees, strangers like these Israelites in their land. And this new pharaoh we read in verse 9 looks at the people of Israel. He views them as as a nation even if they didn't view themselves that way. He sees how they've multiplied and he sees that as a big problem. There's still a minority in Egypt, but Pharaoh stokes the fear of his Egyptian citizens, a fear of those who are different, and leads them to believe that these people are different, they don't belong, and we have to deal with them. Yet even in this, God is still at work among his people. In Psalm 105, we read about how Israel came to Egypt. Jacob, another name for the people of Israel, sojourned, traveled to this land. But the Lord made his people fruitful, very fruitful, made them stronger than their foes. And then God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And that's what we read in our text in verse 10. Pharaoh says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let us execute a plan to control this population because they're afraid that they may join with our enemies and fight against us and they might escape from our land. On the one hand, we can kind of understand how he's thinking here. They've just come to power. Joseph and these Israelites were in power under the old people. They're afraid maybe they'll try to bring our enemies back again. But that doesn't excuse the actions that they take. Because overnight, the Israelites lose their privileged position. They lose their freedom and end up in slavery. And before we move on from this verse, there's a little bit of irony here. Pharaoh does all this because he doesn't want the people to escape from the land. But we're reading the book of Exodus. So spoiler alert, they're going to get out of the land. This isn't going to work. His schemes are going to blow up in his face. And we even see this in in our text. If you jump down to verse 12, it says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they start spreading abroad. God's purposes prevail. There's more and more of them. And so look how the Egyptians react. The Egyptians were in dread of them. Egyptians were afraid of the Israelites. They see these sojourners, they're foreigners, and they think there needs to be something. Something has to be done. Their alarm leads to these increased vile actions they do against these people. That's the opposite of what God desires for those who value life and know him to treat those who are foreign, who are sojourners and travelers. God will tell his people in the book of Deuteronomy that God himself executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner. He gives him food and clothing. And so God tells his people, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What we're seeing here in Pharaoh and the Egyptians is a truth we've seen throughout history that those who do not value life and who want power for themselves will often use the fear of others, particularly the fear of uh, minority smaller groups or the fear of non-native people to get or maintain power. They might present those who are not native as they're subhuman. They're going to undermine our nation. We see it here. 
We could see it in places like how many countries in Europe around World War II thought about the Jews. And today, I I hear this kind of language sometimes on the political right around immigration. Now, I'll talk about the political left later, don't worry. But, uh, and let me be clear here, Uh, there is a problem at our border. There's border security that needs to be done there and greater investment in that. Yet, at the same time, if we value life the way God does, we really need to think about our language around this issue. Because if we call the people, the human beings crossing the border, a foreign invasion poisoning the blood of our nation, for friends, that, that's ungodly language. That sounds an awful lot more like Pharaoh than it does our God and his son, Jesus Christ. Yes, work on the border should be done, but we should not demonize people created in the image of God. But let's think about this personally. On, the, on a personal level, we can do the same thing. There could be someone or a group of people that we fear or don't understand or, or don't like. Maybe that's based on their age or uh, their background, maybe on their race or on their politics. And if we feel that way about someone, we should really challenge ourselves. Do I value these people's lives or do I fear them like this Pharaoh this text talks about? That's a danger of not valuing life is that we fear others, but it normally doesn't stop there because that fear can very easily turn into hurting or taking advantage of others. Those who do not value life often hurt others. We hurt others because we're afraid that they'll hurt us first. This is Pharaoh's problem. He wants it both ways. He wants to stop the Israelites from growing as a population, but he also wants to use them for himself. And so in verse 11, we read that he appoints some taskmasters, some brutal slave drivers to oppress them, afflict them with heavy burdens, to reduce their influence, beat them low, and beat them down. A a later Pharaoh will acknowledge, yeah, we put some burdens on these Israelites. Later in the book of Exodus in chapter 5, the king, the Pharaoh, says to Moses and Aaron, why do you take away the people from their work? Get back to your burdens, not your work, not your job, your burdens. Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are many. You make them rest from their burdens. At least he's honest about what he's doing to them. He's placing a burden on them. Why did they do this? Well, they probably thought if we make them work hard, then they'll spend less time having kids. They'll be less likely to want to build families, and hopefully we'll cut down on their numbers as well. And God knew that this would happen. He had warned his people We read this last week in the book of Genesis. The Lord told Abraham, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They'll be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. And so that's what the Egyptians did. They made the Israelites into slaves, made them build up store cities. It talks about uh, in verse 11, cities where they stored food and things that are supposed to sustain life. But instead, Pharaoh makes them do this as an act of oppression. But these efforts at population control backfire on Pharaoh. We already read in verse 12 that the people continue to multiply even though they're oppressed. So Pharaoh and the Egyptians double down on this. Verse 13 says that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They violently forced them to do this work. Uh, if we want an example of what this could look like, again, we could look later in Exodus. At one place, the Pharaoh gets mad at him, and he says, well, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks 
Instead, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Said you have to make this number of bricks each day. Well, you have to do that and you have to make. Get all the materials yourselves. As our text says, the Egyptians made their lives bitter with harsh labor. They expected rigorous service. They made the Israelites build things with mortar and brick and do field and farm work. And so the Israelites groaned in their suffering. They're serving this Pharaoh instead of serving God. And the suffering ends up breaking them. We read later in Exodus chapter 6 that Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Pharaoh is their Lord. He is in control of their lives. Again, those who do not value life often hurt others. Those who have power often use that to abuse those under them for their purposes. You can see examples of this all over the world. You can see terrible working conditions for people that, that harm them. I remember last year, they had a World Cup in uh, Qatar, and there were stories about how um, getting ready for it, that people were made to work in, in uh, well over 100-degree weather every single day and suffering there. We can even see it in places in the U.S. where there's unsafe working conditions or where a company uses guilt to take advantage of their workers and make them do more than they should. Perhaps more horrifying, we see uh, rampant human trafficking or sex slavery where those who have power and desires take advantage of others. That's why we partner with the organization Down the Road Greenlight Operation that fights human trafficking. Because those who do value life know the truth. And the truth, as God's word says in Psalm 103, is that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now, maybe I'm talking about people hurting them. You're like, well, I would never do those terrible things. Those sound extreme, but sometimes we can do it in our own smaller ways as well. We can cheat someone out of more than what they're owed. We can take advantage of someone's generosity or kindness. We know that they'll do something for us if I say the right things, and we twist them for our advantage. And when we do that, when we take advantage of others, we become less human because we're not valuing life the way God intended. So those who do not value life fear others and hurt others, and if we keep going down that path, then we end up viewing those who are defenseless as expendable. View the defenseless as expendable. Pharaoh's tried slavery. It doesn't seem to be working, so it's time to take the next step. In verse 15, Pharaoh institutes a new policy. He calls the Hebrew midwives to him. He calls these two particular ones. There were probably more than two, but these ones were probably the overseers, the ones in charge of the midwives. And he tells them, here's what you need to do, what I'm ordering you to do. You need to kill all the male children who are born to the Hebrew people. In his mind, that will prevent any future rebellion or issue with these people. The reason he says just the boys is because the girls, well, they can get married to other slaves and that will eventually destroy the identity of this people. This is a cruel, horrific act from Pharaoh. And God's people will remember it for generations. Throughout the Old Testament, they'll bring it up. Even in the New Testament, they'll reference this horrible thing Pharaoh did. This is really a genocide. He's trying to get rid of these group of people. And that always involves taking life 
And that's opposed to God. He's the giver of life. But Pharaoh, this God, he thought of himself as a God. The Egyptians viewed him as a God. He's become a God of death. Maybe there's even, someone said, I I wouldn't read too much into this, but uh, if you've ever seen a picture of a Pharaoh or their crown, there's a little snake on it. Maybe there's some subtle thing there about how a snake, a serpent, was opposed to God, the one who created life way back in the Garden of Eden. Regardless, this Pharaoh, he's acting like an angel of death. He's trying to undo God's creation and his people. And when his strategy with the midwives doesn't work, then he expands it. At the very end of our text in verse 22, he tells everyone in his nation, you need to be involved in this scheme of mine. Everyone is told to get the male Hebrew babies and throw them into the Nile River. In Pharaoh's mind, as awful as this sounds, this is a quick way to deal with it. It's clean. There's no evidence that something has happened. It's hidden. They don't have to have a guilty conscience about it. It's convenient. They can do it. They can move on with their lives. And it's such a tragic use of this resource their society was blessed with. If you remember history class at all, the Nile River is where Egypt was built up on. It was this river that gave them life. It watered their crops. It sustained the civilization. But now it's become a river of death. And God doesn't forget this. If you know the Exodus story, when Moses comes and he tells Pharaoh to let my people go, he starts doing some plagues. And if you remember the very first plague that God does, it's turning this river, the Nile River, to blood. It is judged for its role in killing God's people. And then if you remember the last plague, it's the death of the firstborn sons of the Egyptian people. God's justice is achieved. Now, we might have questions about this verse in our passage. That that sounds horrible, Pastor. How long was this in place? Did people actually do it? What did it look like? And we're not really told about it. The threat must have been real enough. Uh, Moses' parents are afraid they're going to lose him. They take desperate steps to hide him, as we'll talk about next week. It must have been a real threat. And and imagine how awful that would be. I I know... um, My wife's uh, pregnant now. If you've been pregnant, it's normally a time of joy, expectation of this new life. But there were no ultrasounds in this day. So instead, it was nine months of fear of, am I even going to be able to keep this child there? And there must have been immense pressure on the people of Egypt. We need to do this to save our, our country. But the cost was destroying the lives of the helpless and the innocent. Now, the reason this is here in our passage is to set up what's going to happen next week, the amazing story of the birth of Moses, and we'll talk about that next week. But for now, we can see what it looks like when someone does not value life. And before we move on from this verse, there's one one other kind of God's humor and irony he has here. If you look at that verse, Pharaoh is most concerned about this happening to the sons. He's not concerned about the daughters, but if we look at the chapter we just read, Who is it who works against Pharaoh's plan? Well, it's two midwives, two women who work against it. And when we go to next week, we'll see that it's Moses' mother and his sister and then Pharaoh's own daughter who saves Moses' life. So Pharaoh wasn't concerned about the women, but they were the ones who actually got the victory over him. Now, for our purposes, though, before we move on from here, we should recognize that we live in a culture 
that often seems to have little time for those who are defenseless. And we could talk about that in many different ways. I don't, I don't want to be exhaustive with it. But someone who has few rights or is unable to defend or care for themselves. I already talked about what often happens to immigrants or refugees. We could talk about the elderly, how our society wants to hide them, put them away. Or we could talk about abortion, which is often the unjust killing of a defenseless life still in the womb. God says in Psalm 139 that, or the author of the psalm says, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, when I bring this up, I don't want you to, I don't want you to, to hear me as trying to be uh, harsh, beating someone over the head with something. That, that, that's not my desire. If you or a loved one has had an abortion, I, I was not there. I don't know the context. I'm not trying to dredge up the past. I'm trying to speak to God's value of life, that he created life and that he values it and that it's worth defending and that we should seek to build a society, not where we celebrate abortion, but we celebrate life. We care for mothers and children. This is where I'll talk about the political left. They, they used to say things like, we want abortion to be rare, safe, and legal, I, which I, I don't necessarily fully agree with that, but I appreciate the heart behind that language. But now it's about celebrating abortion. Instead, we should build a society where, again, women and their children are cared for and supported. We might disagree on how we get there, sure, but it's worth pursuing. Again, I'm not trying to be exhaustive. I'm just trying to point to illustrations from our passage and fleshed out in real life. These are all different examples of what happens when we do not value life. We end up viewing those who are defenseless as expendable. Now, we look at this and we think this is so horrible. Why did this happen? Because God was at work. He was at work to save his people. And when destruction threatened his people, that's where divine aid appeared. God used not those who did not value life, but those who do value life. And if we look at those who value life, what can we learn about them? Well, those who value life the way God does, first, they fear God. They fear God. And we see this in the lives of these midwives we read about in our text. We're even told their names, Shifra, which means beautiful one, Pua, the splendid one. They feared God more than they did this king of Egypt. And so they did not do, they did not obey his unjust command because they had fear, holy reverence, and awe for the Lord as the almighty creator and judge. Now, they don't deny Pharaoh's authority. They know Pharaoh has power. They know that uh, he's in charge and they should obey him as much as they can, but they do not obey him in this area because they know that he cannot tell them to do something that goes against God. They know that God is above and beyond these unjust laws. And this moment is so incredible because these are two Hebrew midwives. They're poor women. They're slaves of Egypt. They're, they're poor. They have nothing before this man, yet they still trust God more. They know, as the book of Proverbs will say later, by steadfast love and faithfulness and iniquity or sin is atoned for, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Our text points this out twice. When Scripture repeats something, it wants us to see it. In verse 17, it said the midwives feared God. And then in verse 21, it will say because the midwives feared God. 
They knew it would be worse to disobey God than to disobey Pharaoh. And, and again, what I love about this passage is how much little irony, little digs at Pharaoh there is in here. Because if we read this passage, what were the only names we saw here? Well, it was the names of those two women, those two midwives. We don't have the name of this Pharaoh. And if you know anything about Egypt, Pharaohs loved making a name for themselves. You can still go to Egypt and see great monuments and tombs with their names plastered all over it. I'm sure this Pharaoh wanted nothing more than to be remembered forever for what he does. But we don't know for sure what Pharaoh this was, and it doesn't matter. But on the other hand, these two women, their names are preserved for us forever in God's word. As one scholar, Terence Fredheim, said, he says, the Egyptians' fear of the Israelites leads to their failure. The women's fear of God leads to their success. And so the Israelites and God's people today were called to fear, worship, adore, love God first and foremost. Friends, God has more power than anyone else on earth, than any earthly king, ruler, boss, president, bully, anyone. God has more power. He is the one to fear, to reverence, to follow, and obey. And God's people have done this faithfully throughout the generations. We could jump ahead in the Bible story to a man named Daniel. Daniel prayed to God every day, but the king of the land made a law and said, for 30 days you just pray to me. And those who were enemies of Daniel come to the king and they say, Daniel, one of these exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, O king, or this injunction, this law you have signed. He makes his petition three times a day. Daniel didn't listen to that unjust law that pushed him away from God. He continued to pray. Or we can jump to the New Testament where the early believers are telling others about Jesus and the religious leaders try to stop them. But Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than man. Those who value life fear God because fearing God will then lead us to courageously defend others, will defend the lives of others. That's what we see with these women. They're far below Pharaoh by every standard of the day. Uh, women didn't have many rights. They were poor. They were slaves. Yet they faithfully defend life. They resist Pharaoh. They execute some creative disobedience. And we see what God regularly does in Scripture. The book of 1 Corinthians says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. They know that the one true God is the creator of life and that human life is sacred, so they promote life. And this was probably in some ways hard for these women because back in, in this day, if you were a midwife, that probably meant you didn't have children of your own. You may have wanted children, but you haven't been able to have them, so you helped others. And think about this. These women could have been bitter about that. Pharaoh said, look, I know you don't have kids of your own, so here's what I want you to do for these people. I want you to get rid of the male children. And they could have said, that, that's it. That will show them for rubbing their kids in my face. But instead, instead they chose to defend life. God's desire for life overrode Pharaoh's command for death. And sometime later, Pharaoh, he he has some questions about this. It could have been months or years later. He notices there's not a difference. So he calls the women to him. He asks them, why have you done this? Why have you let the male children live? And the women say in verse 19, because Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous is what it says. They're lively. They give birth 
quickly. That word vigorous means life. It's these Hebrew women have life while the Egyptian society is characterized by death. This is a shocking response. Pharaoh is the most powerful man probably in the world at this time, but these women are more faithful and they faithfully serve God. And the mighty Pharaoh is humbled by these slaves. (laughs) These midwives are the ones with the real power. He wants to decreate and destroy life, but he's defeated by these life-giving women. Now, just for a moment, I don't want to spend a lot of time here. Some people look at what the woman respond, how they respond to Pharaoh, and they say, does that mean it's okay to lie and be deceptive? And I I would just say, we don't know the full background of this. What, What they said could have actually been true. When the Bible puts a story in, it's not often putting it in as, so everything that happens here is good or everything that happens here as bad. It's telling us what happened. This is how God preserved his people. On a practical level, it's, it's not wise to resort to lies or distortions to, uh, in any situation because the truth always comes out in one way or another. The main point of this text is that God values faithfulness to him. God desires to preserve life. And that's what God's people have done here throughout Scripture and also from the beginning of the church. The early church would go to cities and they would find infants that have been abandoned by their families and they would adopt them, raise them as their own. That's part of the reason the church grew so much. Early believers started some of the world's first orphanages. Believers have defended others who even aren't Christians when their lives are threatened. You could read about Corey Ten Boom and her family, how they sheltered Jews during the Holocaust. And for us today, God can still use every believer for his gospel purposes and to preserve life. How, you may ask? Well, the book of Isaiah tells us that we shouldn't be in sin. We should wash ourselves, make ourselves clean, remove the evil of our deeds from before God's eyes. We should cease to do evil and learn to do good. How? By seeking justice, correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, pleading the widow's cause. When life is threatened, we can act for God's glory. We could speak to the issues I talked about earlier, or we making sure when we share about it, we have compassion with those who disagree. But more importantly, we can live in a way that reflects God's value of life, not fearing other people, not seeking to hurt or take advantage of others, but instead seeing the value in each person because they're created in the image of God, communicating God's love to them through our word and action, through word, as as Elder Tom shared about sharing the gospel, through action, through meeting practical needs. That is what it would look like to defend life. And if we do that, what's the result of that? Well, those who do value life, we're told, are blessed by God. Those who value life are blessed by God. God desires his creation to be fruitful and multiply. He blesses those who continue that work. We see in verse 20 that God dealt well. He dealt kindly with the midwives. He continued to bless the Israelites. As his people honored him, he continued to bless them. A fear of God brought blessings to their lives. We can see this throughout Scripture. In Psalm 25, we can read that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Ecclesiastes 8, I'm going to jump in the middle of it, says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked because he does not fear before God. And this is what the women experience 
In this day and age, having, in the day and age of the women, having children was extremely important. Nearly everyone desired to have children, and so God honored their faithfulness by granting their desire. Verse 21 tells us, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. They had children of their own, their own households to belong to, to take care of, and experience love in. God does this a lot in Scripture. There's someone who doesn't seem like they can have children, but God works to show that he is the one in control. In the Old Testament, there's people like Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah. In the New Testament, Elizabeth and Mary, but in a very different way. God, someone who hadn't uh, been with someone to have a child. He is a God of life. He overcomes sin and death. Now, when I say this, some of us may be tempted to read very literally into that. And, and so well, the wrong application of this would be to say, okay, so if I want to be married or have kids, I need to do something so God would bless me. That, that's the wrong application to take. The right application is seeing God's character here. God is just. He rewards the loving faithfulness of his people, whether that's in this life or the next. He calls us to take pleasure in what he values, and he takes pleasure in us when we do. It's worth it no matter what happens in this life. It's worth it to be in God's presence. He is one who values life, and he changes our perspective on life as well. In this passage, we we see the difference here. The world that doesn't know God uh, fears others, encourages you to take advantage of others, can lead you to a place where you view those who are defenseless as expendable. They can get out of the way because I'm what's most important. Whereas those who do value life, well, they fear God. They defend the lives of others, and they're blessed by God. That's what our passage talks about. And I could stop right there, close the Bible, and that would be the end of the day. But if I did that, then I haven't really preached a Christian sermon to you. Because this is true that that's the value of life, but we learn that value of life from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We learn the value of life from Jesus. We see this put into practice by Christ. In the same way this passage does, Jesus encouraged us not to fear others or to fear man, but instead to fear, reverence, worship God. We read this verse earlier, Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, I tell you, friends, do not fear man, those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you who to fear. Fear him, fear God, whom after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. He is the one to fear and reverence and worship, not be afraid of other people. And so we can boldly defend life and God's purposes because he is the one worthy of fear and worship. Jesus also didn't live his life hurting others or taking advantage of them. Instead, he gently cared for his people. He says in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor or are heavy laden, burdened like these Israelites were, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In Christ, instead of being taken advantage of like we may find in the world around us, instead we find gentle rest in him. And Jesus doesn't view defenseless life as expendable, but as essential. He cared for children. He himself uh, survived as an infant from another evil king who was trying to kill uh, baby boys. 
And he cares for the defenseless because he cares for us. He rescues us, those who know him, from eternal death. Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus values life. And if we want to see the primary demonstration of that, it's in who he is and what he did. He, the Son of God, came to earth for us. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned, not for himself, his his own advantage, but so he could die to save us, something he didn't have to do, but he did it anyway for us. He suffered more than we can ever imagine. He died for us. He rose to new life, and now he offers us new life with God. He's the ultimate agent of life there. We see God's value of life in him. In Christ, he calls us to turn away from our sin, our rebellion and wrong against God that Jesus died for. And it said to believe, trust in Christ. I encourage you, if you haven't, then know him. Come to know him. Maybe what I've said, you're like, I'm not sure about that. Well, maybe come to know Jesus first if you do not know him. Know him, model his love and concern for life. And then live a life that praises and worships him because he alone is worthy of that.